Well, tonight we're going to continue our study through the Bible as we look at, at seeing Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. We are in the Gospel of Luke, and uh, no small challenge, uh, biggest book of the, Old, of the New Testament. So anyway, let's get right into it so we make sure that uh, I can bring this thing under budget. Um, Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke? Well, like the other Gospels, there is not a, a name that's attached in the text itself. We get accustomed to opening up and seeing the Gospel of Luke, but I think we have to realize that those kind of headings were probably added at later dates. But yet the overwhelming evidence uh, points to Luke, uh, Paul's physician and traveling companion, as being the one who was actually the author. In fact, we find reference to him. The first time we hear of him is in the little book of Philemon where Paul says, Luke, my fellow worker, uh, someone who he saw as a companion in the work of the gospel. Uh, then he's mentioned again in Colossians 4.14 where he says of him more in detail, our dear friend Luke, the doctor, which reveals to us that he was a physician by training and trade and also had become an extremely close companion to the apostle. Uh, the last time he's mentioned really is at the very end of Paul's life and really where we lose any kind of firm historical evidence of the life of Luke. Uh, basically in 2 Timothy 4.11, as Paul is uh, waiting in the Mamertine prison in Rome to be executed, he makes this rather sad statement. He says, only Luke is with me indicating that all the other men that had been part of Paul's ministry and entourage had left, uh, some of them for obvious reasons that are not honorable, out of fear or whatever, uh, others maybe out of necessity. But only Luke, he said now, is with me, and he says to Timothy, come to me, and interestingly he says, and bring John Mark, bring Mark with you because he is useful to me at this time. So that here was this uh, Mark who had been so estranged from Paul, had eventually become, again, as we talked about last week, one of his closest companions and co-workers. Uh, we find that the church fathers, I mean, those who wrote in the second, third, and fourth century across the board affirmed that Luke was the author of this. In fact, the oldest, what we call canon, canon re means, refers to a list of, old, of, new, of books of the New Testament. In other words, early on the church began to compile the books that they recognized as being uh, inspired by God, should be viewed as Scripture. And the earliest one we have, of course, is called the Moratorian uh, uh, Canon, written probably around 170 A.D., which is very early on. And it lists not only Luke's gospel, but it lists it uh, as a co-book, Luke-Acts together. And lists them as one book because, as we'll see, both of them were obviously written by Luke. Uh, really, intend I've already started with the cough drop. So, already intending. I promise not to have a hack attack like last week, <clears throat> and I often break my promises. But um, it becomes it became it makes up really the the most significant portion in terms of sheer volume of the New Testament text. In fact, there's a fourth century prologue, an anti-Marcionite Gospel of Luke. 
written, probably written in the second century, but the textual uh, manuscript that we have dates to the fourth century, and it actually gives this introduction to the Gospel of Luke. He says, Luke was born in Antioch, that is Antioch in Syria, which would be, uh, we look at the nation of Syria today, uh, pretty much the same place, Antioch of Syria, which by the way was the center of the Gentile church in the uh, New Testament period. He is by profession was a physician. He had become a disciple of the apostle Paul and later followed Paul until his martyrdom. Having served the Lord continuously, unmarried and without children, filled with the Holy Spirit, he died at the age of 84. We have no reason to question the authority of that statement and not many scholars would. He's believed by many to be a Gentile convert, some say, think he was what we called a Hellenized Jew, that is a Jew who lived in the Greek culture so much that he had really adopted the Greek culture. But the reason why we suggest one of those two as being the op options is because not only was he a, an apostle or, or a, a follower of the apostle Paul, a disciple of his, who, who followed him into his death, but he wrote both the gospel and the Acts in a style that was very Greek. In a way, in a way this was, these were documents that the educated, cultured Greeks of the day would be able to read it and appreciate it. It would feel like something that was written to them. And in fact, he addresses it to a man by the name of Theophilus, and, uh, and both books are given that introduction as being written for the behalf of this man, Theophilus. One other thing I might mention is that we find that in Acts chapter 16, the narrative changes from the third person to the first person, where he starts saying, we. So that we know that by the time Paul reached Troas, when Paul has, gets the call to go to Europe and to Philippi on his second missionary journey, he begins to refer to himself as companioning with Paul and the rest of the team. So whether he had left from Antioch with him in the beginning of the journey, or he had met him on the way, we're not sure. But one thing we find is from that point on, he became Paul's continual companion, and probably for practical reasons. We know that Paul reveals to us that he had health problems, and it may have been that having a physician in attendance with him continually was something that helped to strengthen him and get him through some of the difficult seasons that he would face in his ministry. Luke is probably the easiest of the four Gospels to identify a pretty exact date, primarily because of the connection to the book of Acts. In fact, uh, pretty much it's agreed that the book of Luke was written sometime between 61 and 62 AD, the same time Paul was in prison, and so therefore most suggest that he was actually, he actually wrote this while Paul was imprisoned in Rome the first time. If you're not familiar, Paul is actually imprisoned twice, the first time he is acquitted of charges and released. Uh, and he had an advantage. He was able to live in a rented house, and he was chained to uh, basically Roman guards. So there would be four times a day they would change the guards, and these gentlemen had the opportunity of literally being handcuffed to the prisoner 
uh, as he lived within his own house and was able to receive people in and out of his home with, quite, with a great deal of freedom. Uh, but we often, uh, it, it becomes evident when we read in Ephesians where Paul talks about putting on the armor of God that Paul didn't have to look very far to get the, the illustration. All he had to do was look across the room to the guy who was his constant companion and start looking at his outfit and describing that as being the similar, uh, metaphorically speaking, the, uh, the uh, uniform that we as Christians need to put on in the battle against evil that we have to confront on a daily basis. So he wrote from Rome, 61, 62 AD, but more of interest to me and I would think to you is, is what it is that makes this book stand apart from the other three Gospels. Uh, keep in mind, as I said, Luke is the longest of the four Gospels. It is without question the most comprehensive and the most chronologically complete. In other words, it is more of what we would consider a complete composition or a full story than the other Gospels are. And we've talked about the difference about those. We'll go into that a little bit by comparison. But when you think about it, you put Luke and Acts together and that makes up one-fourth the entire New Testament. So a quarter of the New Testament is just in those two books, which is a result of the depth and detail that uh, the writer put into the story. Uh, both are addressed to the same individual. We don't know exactly what the relationship was. He calls them the most excellent Theophilus. Uh, the name Theophilus means friend of God. Uh, could mean something. It may not necessarily mean anything. There were a lot of people named Theophilus. But when he says he is most excellent, basically he's telling us he was a nobleman. He was somebody who was pretty important, probably very wealthy, and uh, a person of great influence. Some have suggested that Paul was actually trying to respond to criticisms, or excuse me, Luke was trying to respond to criticism and attack uh, of those who were saying that the gospel story was fable. And so what he sets out to do is to put a very, out a very historically accurate, documentable, evidentiary-based story of the life of Christ and the birth and the life of the early church. In fact, he starts off in the very first four verses of chapter 1 of Luke by saying as much. He says, many have undertaken to drop an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those whom from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So here he begins by admitting, he says, there are many people at this point by 60 AD who are already starting to write down the accounts and the remembrances of Jesus' life and ministry. Most of those have been lost to us. All we have that's still extant are the four Gospels that we have before us. Uh, I know sometimes people get confused with uh, you know, the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Peter, and so forth. These were Gnostic writings that were composed uh, at least 100 to 200 years later and have no actual historical connection. or They're just basically the, the spinning of yarns by uh, people who had different agendas, not unlike what we've encountered today. 
But he says, I, I set out to do something that hadn't been accomplished yet, something, something that was not only eyewitness testimony, uh, but was carefully investigated. I went and did the facts, the research. I talked to the people. I double-checked my, my reports. Uh, I did it in an orderly way so that you would know how it evolved in a chronological sequence. And I wanted to do it so that you could be certain, know that what you're really reading here is not fables, but you're actually reading facts as they are being reported by someone who, by profession, had what we would call a scientific mind. In other words, this is a person who was used to doing analysis. That's how they diagnosed the, the problems that people might be suffering with. A particular note along those same lines is that Luke gives so much careful attention to names, dates, places, He's very concerned with the historical and factual accuracy. Now, if we talk about the other two Gospels we've looked at so far, there's an important contrast to make because, as we said before, each had its own uh, audience that it was trying to appeal to, and it took the angle that would be most familiar. Matthew is written by a, to Jews in a way that they would be accustomed to hearing a rabbi speak in the synagogue. It's built around five major teachings, and it really emphasized what would matter most to a Jew. Is Jesus the son of David? Is he the Messiah? Is he the promised king who had come and set up God's kingdom upon the earth? And that's the whole direction why he quotes the Old Testament prophets uh, some 50 different times. But then we come to Mark's gospel we looked at, we coughed through last week, and Mark obviously was speaking to a Gentile audience because he's having to explain to them all these Jewish customs and, and words that would be totally unfamiliar with them. We believe that he wrote it from Rome. And uh, because just the nature of it would have been something that really appealed to the Roman ear. Romans were no-nonsense people. Uh, basically, uh, they really respected authority and power. And they usually respected authority when it came with power. And so Jesus is presented as being the ultimate authority. He is the power of God. He is the Son of God, which to the Roman ear, again, has a different resonance than to ours. Because to the Roman ear, the Son of God was something that they linked to the Caesar. Caesar claimed to be a son of God. It was one of his titles. And so he was basically divinity upon earth. And what Mark brings out is, but Jesus really was. Every kind of knew the emperor really wasn't, but they went along with it. But he's saying, but Jesus is actually the, the very person of God who has come and lived his life out amongst us. But then when you look at Luke... It's written to portray Jesus not as the Messiah, not as the Son of God as much as it is to relate to Him or present Him as the Son of Man who came, as Luke would later say in chapter 19, verse 10, He came to seek and to save that which was lost. So that what we find is that the, the Greeks who uh, were preoccupied with the consideration of man and this may be a little confusion, even though Rome was the power that controlled the world, Greek culture, what, was control, what controlled education, the Roman nobility would hire Greek teachers and philosophers to train their children because the Greeks were viewed as being the intellectual giants as the Romans themselves saw themselves as the military giants. And so when you look at Greek literature and the Greek thought, everything is concerned with humanity. That's why they were the first one to create sculptures that depicted people in real ways. 
I mean, in other words, when we think about Greek sculptures, uh, you, uh, you, you, you have this idea of this kind of Adonis-like picture, you know, of somebody who has this perfectly formed figurine. It's funny, when I, last time I walked through the Vatican in Rome, they have a whole uh, garden full of statues, Greek statues that uh, were appropriated over the centuries. And it's kind of funny to me because everything is so prudish, but you've never seen so many naked people in your life. Uh, and this was kind of the Greek way. They, they reveled in the beauty of the human form. And when the Renaissance took over Europe, and we have people like da Vinci and, and, and so forth, they are really trying to recapture that same focus that was present during this Greek era era of humanism and the reality of the human. And we see this to some degree where the, the term, the, the son of man, is used 28 times in Mark's gospel. Son of God is only used six. So the emphasis, him being the son of man, because as such, what he becomes is the perfect example of humanity. So this is God becomes a man. He is Emmanuel who lives amongst us. And if you want to see man in perfection, you're not going to see it in the Greek philosophers or the Greek cultures or in the Roman emperors or anybody else. You're going to see it in the person of Jesus. And that becomes the whole presentation so that everything that Luke writes in this gospel underscores the human aspects of Jesus, which is why, as we said, we re he's recorded as the son of man, his humanity, we have, for example, in Luke's gospel, in the first two chapters, the most complete record of Jesus' birth and his childhood in the first two chapters. In other words, we would know very little beyond what we, the little bit we have inside of Matthew's gospel about the Magi coming, but something we'll talk about later on when we get towards Christmas is the Magi, the wise men, didn't show up until Jesus was two years old. So it's the shepherds that we read about in Luke's gospel who are there the night of his birth. So Jesus didn't appear first to the kingly, he appeared first to the lowly. And this kind of underscores the whole sense of Jesus then at the age of 12, uh, lingering in the, in the courtyards of the temple and sitting down with the doctors of the law in the very place that as an adult he would later be preaching to the multitudes in Jerusalem. And he's beginning to ask them questions and to exchange with them out of a wisdom that they are confounded by. And that's the only pictures we get of his entire childhood. And without Luke, we wouldn't even have that information or knowledge. So this really comes out the human traits. And we even see that throughout the gospel because we find here is Jesus in chapter 19 weeping over Jerusalem. In fact, He's sorrowfully foretelling the destruction of the city of Jerusalem four times in this gospel alone. He does it in chapter 13, he does it again in chapter 19, he does it in chapter 21, he does it again in chapter 23, where Jesus tells the Jewish people, you are going to suffer, and he weeps and travails over that suffering as he foresees what's coming on it. You, you can't help but feel the passion when he says, how like a, a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, I would have gathered you to myself and protected you. But you wouldn't have it. You didn't want it. Well, along with this, things like just statements in chapter 22 where it says in his agony that he sweat great drops of blood. Uh, no other gospel tells us that. No other gospel relates the level of travail and agony that he went through as he waited the uh, coming of his arrest and the beginning of his, his passion. 
There secondly is something that really stands out is what I would call the universality of the gospel. In other words, the idea that the gospel is intended for everyone. And if you've been around one, you've heard me say it many times, but in the Jewish world of that time, the Gentiles were damned. There really was little or no, to no hope for them. If they converted and, and gave themselves over to fully to Judaism with circumcision and everything else went with it, then they could possibly be saved. But outside of that, they were, they were damned. There was no hope for them, along with the Samaritans and, and any number of other people. And yet what we find is there's a clear teaching in Luke's gospel that the, the gospel is meant for everyone. And this is one of the arguments that's often used for saying that he, was, he himself was a Gentile. And, and if you're interested, you can that, that debate is fascinating and, and lengthy, and I won't take the time to go into it. But the bottom line is even at the announcement of his birth, when the angels come and announce his birth to the shepherds, it says, the angel of the Lord appeared to them and said to them, do not be afraid, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people not just the Jews. You see, in the mind of the Jew that day, the Messiah would come and it would be great news for the Jews, bad news for everybody else. And he says, no, it's going to be great news for all people. He says, peace to men on whom God's favor now rests, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and a glory to your people Israel. So yes, Israel is going to be glorified, but he is going to be the, a revelation, insight, and opening of eyes to the Gentile world, quoting, of course, from the prophet Isaiah. We see this even further in the love that in concern and value he places on outsiders. For example, the very first sermon that Jesus preached according to Luke's chronology in chapter 4 of the gospel. It says that he went to his hometown of Nazareth. And it says that all spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words. So he comes home, you know, young man goes away to the big city, has huge crowds, his fame is spreading everywhere. And so as he begins his journey, he goes back to Nazareth, which is really from Capernaum to Nazareth is half a day's walk. It's really quite easy to get there. You can even walk it today. Very beautiful journey. But he, he walks to his hometown, which is a city not more than a few hundred people. Nazareth was a very, very small, little out-of-the-way rural Hicksville, if you will, in the mind of the Jewish world. That was part of the resistance that many had to the Messiah coming out of Nazareth. It would be like me saying that the, the next president of the United States is going to come from Ritzville. You know, you might say it's possible, I just wouldn't count on it. And it's that kind of, I'm sorry if you're from Ritzville, I apologize. I'm sure it's a fine place that makes fine kids. But... Uh, but the reality, it was, just, it was just something that wasn't really thinkable. But here he comes back to town. He's a small kid who makes it big in this city in a way that a, a, an Orthodox Jew could respect the most. He was a religious leader, a great rabbi. Large crowds are coming to listen and hang on his every word. And he reads the scriptures and he says, this day this word is fulfilled in your ears. And it's amazing. The people say that they were all amazed at the gracious words that came, out of, came from his lips. Everybody's impressed. Great sermon. But Jesus had a way of snatching victory out of the mouths of defeat. You know, he had a way of, of kind of just, it's almost like you get the sense, I'm just guessing here, that he wasn't really into impressing people. He was kind of into telling them the truth. <laughs> you and I say we like people like that. We don't. <laughs> Lie to me. Tell him I'm wonderful. But 
He says, I tell you the truth. And then he unloads on him. He says, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. Yeah, it's kind of like saying, you accept me as the preacher, but now I'm going to become a prophet. Now I'm going to start meddling. Now I'm going to start getting into your life. And he says to him, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, during the time of Israel, great hardships during Elijah's day. And when the sky was shut for three and a half years, there was so severe a famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, 